week of May 29th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 584, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. Back in Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Uh, back in Los Angeles, and not in Cannes, France, I'm Michael Giltz. Well, glad you're back, yeah, yes. Sperling. Yeah, it would have been nice to have you there, you know? Little, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, two together. weeks without an episode. First, you were traveling, and then all sorts of woes were happening. The sort of stuff that really consumes you when you're at con is the stuff other people don't care about. You've come back, and you're like, I'm exhausted. And we're all like, we don't <laughs> care. But you had yeah. you had annoying ticket. They've done a whole new ticketing system, it sounds like. And that was totally messed up for a while. And you had a Wi-Fi outage throughout con, especially from one company, it seems like. Like one company had like half their customers did not have Wi-Fi. So, and there are lots of protests this year, very political con. That's from looking outside. Did you have internet issues and were the ticketing woes as bad as they said? Well, uh, early on, yes, the ticketing woes were pretty bad. I mean, but I also knew just like last year it was the same system. Okay. So it's the same exact system as they had in 2021 to help with COVID. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was like a Ticketmaster uh, phenomenon where you, you know, everybody goes in at once. They basically made tickets available at 7 a.m. four days before the, you know, the screenings. That day, uh, right. So on Monday, you had Friday's stuff available. Okay. Right. And so everybody would get on, and during the heavy days, the first weekend, for instance, it was, you know, there were a lot of people there. Uh, and so eventually they separated out the press, which is something they probably should have done from the very beginning. And they said, okay, Duh. the press has its own website. Uh, and then there, there was also some question about, there was a lot of traffic coming in from outside of Cannes, which made no sense. So there was some question about whether there was a denial of service attack being done by bad that's actors. What they, that's what they claimed. Yeah, they, they don't, they're still trying to figure it out. I would say this. Yes, there were some snafus uh, early on. I would also say it ultimately worked. Okay. Do you like this better than the old system? Do you think it does create less hassle when you're there at the event? Yes, I do. I know people hate it, but uh, not not everybody does. And I will say this, rather than stand in line for four hours to to find out you didn't get into a screening, now you can line up maybe half an hour beforehand, 45 minutes beforehand to get in. And you know you have a ticket. Why would so you line up half an hour beforehand if you know you're getting in? Or 45 well, minutes? Because, other, because otherwise, you know, you wind up sitting in the front row or someplace where, you know, with bad sight lines. So it, it would, you know, but Triangle of Sadness was, yeah, a, a, was I, a horrible, you know, moment. <laughs> Let's put but, it that way. But in general, you can show up 20 minutes before a movie that's not the crazy big in-demand movie and you're going to be Correct. okay. Okay, well, that's that's certainly much better. And that really helps the people who are yellow and blue, of course, more than the pink and the white. I saw people who were yellow and blue sitting in better seats than those who had white. They have democratized. They had definitely democratized. And and frankly, and I know we haven't even talked about what we're discussing. As Manola Dargis said, and I'll give her credit for this, she said what they have done in Cannes is they have defanged the press. They have taken the press, and rather than show the movie to everyone, all the members of the press, at 8.30 in the morning, and then they all come out of the screening, and they go to their boite, the press boxes, in the Palais des Festivals there on the Quasette. They have broken it up so that not all of the press is seeing the film at the same time, and there isn't this feeding frenzy that feeds on itself, where a bad film goes from, yeah, it wasn't, 
great to it was the worst movie of all time and how could this dare be in the festival too you know where it just kind of it's being booed on the uh, on this, the streets this is, not the, this is not the purpose of it this was to avoid the scrum of people standing in line for two hours before a movie yes right that's that the is also of yes. this. this is that's a, a guess about a possible side effect but more importantly do people with pink and white badges get earlier access to those tickets no then no, why not? That's stupid. So the pink no, and white badge are, are, means nothing I have anymore? no idea. No, it's, it's basically been democratized. Now, you if you're a white badge, you could probably go to the press offices and say, I didn't get into this. I need to see it. And guess what? You're going to get a ticket. There's always you know, held yeah. tickets that are held back. For them, so you yeah. will be able to do that. All right. Well, the important people will. So that's interesting. So, so it's not as a nightmare. I mean, do we you- explain to listeners who've never been... Well, there's all, they understand there's tickets to see screenings and all sorts of levels of access. It used to be the poor people stood, had to wait in line for four hours and wait, hopefully, while the people with the important badges strolled in five minutes before, and then they would let you in at the last second to fill in the extra seats. Now that's all been tossed out the window, and everybody has to scramble for tickets online days in advance. But at least you know, all right, Friday, I've got these four or five movies lined up, or two, if you're not really ambitious, and you know you're getting in, basically. So Correct. that's that's interesting. Well, I think that sounds great too. And uh, the Wi-Fi outages? I have no idea. Even the, you know who who told me about that was you uh, five minutes ago. I no, have no said, idea what you're. You said to. in the middle of the week when we didn't record our second week that you were having internet issues and having trouble checking your email. Uh, I think uh, it was just that I have trouble checking email in general. Like so. you always do. There you go. All right. So we'll talk more about Com, but it looks like it was a normal year, which is a positive sign. It was certainly a normal weekend at the box office in terms of having a big movie with a big star, open big. So what are we going to talk about this week? It was anything but normal, and we'll explain why. Because bonjour, Michael. That is what, I, that's how I was supposed to start. I was supposed to impress you with all my French. <laughs> Uh, and it, it's not working out. But uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are going to be all about Cannes. As you mentioned, uh, I'm back, as as you said, from sunny France, where I sacrificed myself, Michael, as you know, to cover mm-hmm. all the important movie news happening on mega yachts and at the beach. Okay, actually, I was shuffling from one darkened theater to crowded press conferences to yet another darkened theater. But it was fun, if not so glamorous. We'll talk about the deals, the protests, and once in a while, I guess maybe we'll throw in a movie or two. We've also got TV news. The upfronts happened. So on Inside Baseball, we'll actually explain what the upfronts are. We will be upfront about it. Okay. <laughs> and uh, by the way, look at we're going to look at the big questions facing the TV networks, the streamers, the advertisers, and even, you know, hold on to your hats, folks. We're going to let Michael analyze this week's streaming numbers. Yes. Yeah, brother. Uh, Mind you, we won't forget about other entertainment news. Eurovision got political and Putin won't be happy about it. Kevin Spacey is back on top. Not really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, not really. And and by the way, Disney is getting batted around by politicians who wanted to just shut up already. Oh, poor Bob 2.0. By the way, Bob 2.0, I I thought Bob, uh, he was busy making burgers this weekend, but maybe (laughs) that was a different Bob. Uh, Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And I I think you're going to go straight to, uh, you're going to gun yourself straight to the top. 
That's right. We're looking at box office around the world. If you look at our show notes, we also have last week's box office, the week ending May 22nd. That's where Doctor Strange was still on top. And the roundup, this Korean action flick, a sequel, opened very big in Korea. It's become the highest grossing film of the year in Korea for any film, not just a Korean film. So it's bigger than Doctor Strange, bigger than uh, Spidey and all that sort of stuff. So that was, and Downton Abbey was chugging along last week. This week, we have another big new movie on top. The number one film around the world is, of course, Top Gun Maverick. It made $280 million worldwide. It opened on 25,000 screens. That's the estimate according to Paramount. So a big, big hit film for Paramount. The biggest opening week of Michael, Michael, of Tom Cruise's career in all sorts of ways. You slice and dice the numbers. We'll get more to the slicing and dicing the numbers in a minute. But a big, I mean, by a, by a country opening. mile, Michael. It's, 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 well, no, I mean, it, it only passed the last Memorial Day winner uh, with Monday estimates, giving it another $5 million. So now Top Gun Maverick has outpaced Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, also a film produced by Jerry oh, Bruckheimer. I'm talking about, I'm talking about, uh, you know, when you look at Top Gun Maverick, in Tom Cruise's career, it opened three day in North America to $126 million. His highest opening before that was, I think, $64 million. And that was War of the Worlds in 2005. That's right. Tom Cruise is an interesting movie star because he does not have a lot of big movies. He now has a franchise, of course, a tentpole with Mission Impossible. And basically, if you look at his movies that have opened over $50 million, they're almost all Mission Impossible movies before Top Gun, except for War of the Worlds, which at one point was his highest grossing movie worldwide and I think in North America. That's, of course, without adjusting inflation. He's been a big star for a long time. Top Gun made a lot of money in the 80s. So did Rain Man. Those were big, big movies. But in this era where we're so used to seeing movies make half a billion, 800 million, a billion dollars, you know, Tom Holland has lapped Tom Cruise in terms of box office grosses worldwide. That's because we're in a whole new era. And until Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise was not playing the tentpole game. He's making films, you know, movies for adults, each standing on their own. He had the Jack Reacher, had two movies. That was a little unusual for him. But by and large, he was not making sequels and he wasn't making movies designed to be big, massive temples. He was having hits out of Rain Man, having hits out of, you know, movies not necessarily expected to do that well. And yet he well, does yeah, have a in big, fact, big profile worldwide. In fact, uh, he made a point of not doing sequels until Mission Impossible. But the reason he did that is he was the producer. So that was one of the reasons he decided to, to No, make I think he made sequels. he made Mission Impossible because he wanted to make a movie with sequels and he wanted to have a franchise of his own and he wanted that big payday. I mean, it's not because he was a producer. He became a producer because he wanted to make a movie like Mission Impossible where he could have that big, high-profile James Bond-type film every three years. I think you're putting He's the cart. I think you're putting the cart before the horse. That's right. Before Top Gun Maverick, which I saw Sunday night, they had a trailer for the next Mission Impossible movie coming out in July of 2023. Uh, so, you know, they are priming the pump for that one. They are ready for that movie. So Top Gun Maverick is number one around the world. $280 million worldwide. We'll have to see where it ends up, but by far the biggest hit of Tom Cruise's career. And number two, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, another $66 million. That's at $870 million worldwide. Clearly that 
that's going to hit a billion dollars. I think unless the bottom falls out of it, it, it should hit a billion dollars. Downton Abbey, a new era is chugging along. Old people showed up, including my mom and her friends. They went this Friday. Uh, it made $18 million last week, including the $49, I think, $48 and change we paid for eight senior citizen tickets <laughs> in Birmingham. Wow. It $6.39 each. Uh, so it was about $48, $49 for, to bring all eight ladies to that movie. So that's $18 million plus $50. Uh, it's at $70 million worldwide. So Downton Abbey, the sequel, has made $70 million worldwide. It's having pretty good legs, I think. The original made just under $200 million. This one, I think, is going to not get near that. Uh, it looks like it's not going to have the same legs, but maybe it's going to get to 120, 130. That should be plenty enough for them to make another movie if they so choose. And number four is The Roundup, the Korean action film. Another $26 million this week. It's at $55 million worldwide. Basically all made in Korea. It's the biggest hit of the year in that market. Then we go to India, and a movie that's playing all around the world, not just in India, but also in uh, North America and other countries. It's Bul Bulayiwa. I'm sorry, Bubula Yaiwa uh, 2. It's a sequel, Bubula Yaiwa 2. It's a horror comedy flick. It made $16 million this week. I think it opened last Sunday, so it made about $4 million last week. Uh, it's at $20 million worldwide for a movie that I think cost about $10 million. Then there's The Bad Guys, the DreamWorks animated flick, $16 million this week, and it's about to pass the $200 million mark. Right below that is another animated flick that Sperling made a reference to. It's Bob's Burgers, the movie. Basically, if you like the show, you like the movie. If you like, don't like the show, you won't like the movie. It's not going to win them any new fans, but it made thirteen to fifteen million dollars now over this Memorial Day weekend. No idea what the budget was. The budget for the Simpsons movie was seventy-five million dollars, but I think that's because it was such a big franchise and made so much money on merchandising. Uh, and they wanted to make, of course, a classic good movie. But I also think it was a bit of a payday for the voice actors because they're like, well, come on. <laughs> you know, so Bob's Burgers, the movie, not at the same level. It's a, on opening week, about the same number of people who watch that show every week showed up at the theaters. So if they can move beyond that, it'll be, you know, gravy, I think. But as far as the budget, no idea. Another family film, Sonic the Hedgehog, made $10 million. That's about to hit the $400 million mark. And Everything Everywhere All at Once is still chugging along. That's at $72 million worldwide. It's still only opened up in about 18 territories. It made $7 million last week. It's got a lot of territories to go. So that one is doing well. As compared to Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, which really has kind of fallen off a cliff. It's at about $400 million worldwide. HBO is going to be showing it on now. <laughs> it's got showing an HBO Max on May 30th, 45 days after it opened in theaters. It still made $7 million this week, so it's still chugging along, but nowhere near going to hit like the $800 million or $700 million that they were hoping for. It's going to tap out at $400 million, especially since people can now see it for free and pirated copies will be everywhere. I think they probably would say, well, it's basically played out. You, know, you never know. Did people knowing that they'd be able to see it on HBO Max around now, does that keep them from bothering to go to the theater? I would think so. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple movies I'm wondering about. One is this Indian film. It appeared in the American Top Ten, and I didn't see it on the chart I look at for Indian cinema. The chart I look at is called Bollywood Hungama. So 
maybe this site only includes movies made in Bollywood as opposed to India overall, because this movie is not a, it's a Telugu film created in the language of Telugu and that part of the country. There are Punjabi films on the chart. There are Telugu films and they're not appearing on the Bollywood Hungama site. So if you know a better website that I can go to, to find out what's opening up in India, that's not as slow as box office uh, uh, mojo, which you know shows stuff in different countries, but you got to wait days and days before they rack up. You know, you can see what opened in Japan, but basically it's Monday, and all they list is one movie, Top Gun Maverick. It takes them days before you get the full chart. The same is true for India and other countries. So I was going to different websites to find out stuff about Japan and Korea and India. And the Indian website I have, I think only covers Bollywood cinema. So if you knew a better website, tell us. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is the email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail and we will play it on one of our future episodes. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. Or we're on Facebook. You can like us, uh, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. You know, I'm trying to find uh, Indian box office because there is a film right now that is causing quite a few headlines. Do you know what film I'm referring to? Uh, no. The Kashmir Files. This is the oh, film. We, talked, that, we uh, talked about that a few weeks ago. Yes. The, the oh, we did. Okay. Yes, 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 we did. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, we're not a fan of that movie. Um, the, uh, the, the Indian Telugu film I was talking about is F3, Fun and Frustration. It's the third in the series. That made about $5 million this week. I figured that out via Comscore. In the notes, they mentioned this movie. And, of course, I saw that it was in the American Top Ten, but not on my Bollywood Hungama website. So that was confusing. Another movie opened in North America a lot more modestly. It's called The Bandit Sun 2. And that opened to a modest 133000 So maybe that one just didn't make enough money. But that's also not a Bollywood film. You know, there's, the Indian market has a lot of different cultures and languages. Not all and movies are Bollywood movies. That specifically refers to Hindu films made in the Bollywood area, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we're always looking for more information. Same problem with Japan. Uh, Japan, Shin Ultraman opened up uh, three weeks ago. And it's made about $16 million after two weeks in Japan. I don't know about what it made this weekend, but it was falling kind of hard, kind of fast. So not doing great. But this Shin Ultraman is part of this whole collective here called the Shin Japan Heroes Universe. And so as I was looking at Shin Ultraman, I said, oh, there's a Shin Godzilla. What the heck is that? What's going on here? I looked it up. There is a universe of Japanese characters that aren't otherwise really connected. Basically, this director who was making these movies brought these different companies like Toho together and said, I want to make these movies. I want to link them all and we're going to create our own like Marvel-like universe. And so he got all these diverse companies to agree to sort of connect their universes in this way. The creator is Hideaki Anno. He seems to be the driving creative force. He's done a Shin Godzilla, Shin Ultraman. He's done an Evangeline reboot and an upcoming reboot of Kamen Rider. Uh, there's also seems to be a theme park in the works, but it's opening so soon. It seems to be pretty modest stuff, not like a real big Universal or Disney theme park. But they're linking all these different characters who were created differently, owned by different companies. They're sort of bringing them together to say you're all one big happy family. 
So Shin Ultraman is playing in Japan and making money this week. The quintessential quintuplets, the movie opened up in Japan. Not sure how much money it made. It's a film finale to a manga series in Korea. They're showing a Japanese anime film called butt detective, the secret of souffle Island. And it's a sequel to butt detective, which I don't know. It must be based on a manga or something. I don't know. Anime, but I can't find anything about butt detective. So there's lots of trouble in trying to track down this I think you just like saying butt. I think that's really your basically. Basically, he looks like a butt. That's the big joke of the, at least visually, when I found a, a, a slide. So yeah, you're looking at a, at, a, at a big butt. So he's a guy with a big butt for a face. So I think it's geared <laughs> towards kids. I hope so, at least. <laughs> and in China, we're seeing several weeks of really slow box office. Well, I don't know this week's box office, but two week, the last two weeks, all top 10 films added up together were about $15 million. So basically, they're really shut down. They're really hurting. And we hope people stay healthy and happy there in Japan. But yeah. Shanghai's still in lockdown? I mean, they're starting to loosen me. up on some businesses, yes. Okay. But, but no, it's, people are complaining and it's difficult and uh, it needs to deal with the pandemic and lots of countries have lots of different ways of doing it. And this one doesn't look like a good one. I can so, tell you that in France that, uh, yeah, nobody was wearing a mask ever, anywhere, ex unless you were American. In fact, I actually heard uh, lots of French people in French say, oh, you can always idiot. tell the Americans, they're the ones idiot wearing the mask. Idiot American. <laughs> so yeah, Top yeah. Gun was the big movie. 60% male. 55% of the audience was over 35. Like almost 20% of the audience was old people like me, over 55. That is so old. Oh my God. His best opening by far, the best Memorial Day weekend by far. Uh, and that, of course, was very controversial. They were all trying to figure out what to do. And we've been railing about it over the years. Movies in the mid-2000s started to open up on Thursday night. Cool, fine, okay. whatever. You can open on Wednesday night. Movies have often opened on Wednesday. Now that means a movie on Wednesday opens up on Tuesday night. <laughs> and so in big cities or areas where there's lots of screens, if you were seeing Top Gun Maverick, it was open on Thursday night. I guess if you're in a small town or there's just one theater where they have an obligation for their screen until Friday, that it wouldn't open up till Friday. Because my brother, who is 66 and is going to his first movie in about three years, is going to go see Top Gun Maverick. He's seen it right now. They got him back into the theater. That's his kind of movie. And he was utterly confused when I mentioned you could go Thursday. He's like, ha, everywhere I looked, everywhere I looked, it said opening everywhere, May 27th. I go, yeah, yeah, that's true. But it really means May 26th. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows that if you're in any sort of size town, you can go Thursday night. He's like, well, why do they say May 27th? I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I had to talk Calm him down. down. But- the problem is everybody's been rolling in those Thursday night numbers and saying, oh, this big three-day weekend, which includes $60 million from Thursday. I always said, no. <laughs> There's a record for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If you want a record for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's okay, but that's different. Don't say the three-day weekend includes the Thursday numbers. It doesn't. And this began in late, mid-2000s. By 2013, almost every movie was opening up on Thursday. And the records were bastardized because everybody just threw in that Thursday net number. Well, okay, let's just say, you know. It's like, no. There's all sorts of fun records to be had. There's a three-day weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's a four-day record. There's a five-day record for movies that open on Wednesday. There's a six-day record for movies that open on Tuesday night. How much has a movie made in its first seven days? That's also a record. Memorial Day weekend? Well, you've got three records here. You've got 
Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the traditional three-day weekend. You've got the four-day Memorial Day weekend record of Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And if you like the five-day record for how much a movie made on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But everybody got confused. They didn't know when they went back to look at the old records. Well, how much did that make? Does that include Thursday? Should we include that? Should we compare it? Okay, so so where, where are we headed with this? <laughs> well, well, they have screwed up the records. They're doing the same thing in television. They're doing the same thing in music. They're either smooshing together numbers or they're trying to pretend a streaming is in fact a sale when it's not. So just stop. Just go back and redo all those records because none of those records for the best three-day weekends of all time make any sense anymore. Basically, here, here, here's what everybody's trying record. to do. Hey, I need to get a lot of headlines. How do I do that? I have set a record you for don't what? Do Setting records line. of the records that were set when the records had records. It's just like well, that's, that, that's that's a press release by a studio. I'm talking about the trades and the people who cover box office and the people who talk about the actual numbers. They're not in the business of doing press releases for the studios. They're in the business of providing accurate information. And when Variety and Hollywood Reporter and Deadline and Mojo are all fighting and arguing about, well, how much movie did that movie make? Whoa, does that include Thursday? When nobody even knows and they have to go back and try and figure it out, they've screwed it up. Keep clear, accurate records. A three-day weekend total does not include Thursday night grosses. So just go back, fix your numbers, and make it right. Good luck. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Anybody could do it. Did you have good luck at Con? I absolutely. Well, I got there fine. I got back fine. So, uh, yeah. And you're, and I, you're, did you get tested at home or did you have to test when you came back or what was the deal? No, I tested there and uh, was fine. Uh, and actually, you know, Stephen Garrett, uh, by the way, you know, uh, Stephen Garrett, who, uh, of course, the head of Jump Cut, the marketing and trailer uh, company, uh, and Karen Krasanovich, who writes uh, for us and uh, at Celluloid Junkie and and uh, Monocle Magazine and many, many others. She's the actual, uh, I think she's the secretary of the L London Film Critics Society. Uh, cool. She's one, oh, so one you, all, you all room together? Uh, no, uh, I roomed with Steven. Uh, we were all there and we're going to try and do a little uh, can, a special can podcast. We'll see if we get it together. Well, you need to we'll do see. it now. Yeah, that's exactly when we're going to do it. <laughs> you can't do it Thursday even. You, know, no. you need to get it done right now. Well, that would be cool. Um, We'd love to hear all, all your thoughts. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, uh, it was not the best can in terms of film selections. I think uh, if you were following along in the trades and the newspapers, I think you probably picked up on that, that the, the it looked like weren't. a terrible can from the, from the perspective of the outsider. Uh, I look at like the surveys of critics. You right. took part in one who was, who was sponsoring that critic survey? You know, I, I'm, I, I'm almost afraid to try and pronounce the name of this uh, website because it is in, in Danish. Uh, it's basically echo film Mac, you know, magazinet. All right. It's a film magazine called Echo from, uh, you know, from Denmark. Uh, and myself, Stephanie Zakarik of Time, uh, Lee Marshall of Screen, uh, uh, somebody from Norway, Afton Posten, uh, Klaus Christensen, of course, from Echo, and Ariane Allard from Positif uh, in, in France. Uh, I think it's France. Maybe I'm wrong. But you uh, all, you yeah, all so we all put to their surveys. So basically, they list yeah. all the competition films and you all weigh in with your reviews of all the ones that you saw. And of course, you stayed Correct. for the whole festival. You saw uh, 42 films. Good for you. Pat on the back. Yeah. I mean, after a while, they all start blending together. And, you know, Stephen and I, we were trying to figure out like there were certain themes that ran throughout the festival, like donkeys in movies. There seemed there to be two a donkey. donkeys. There were two donkeys. There no, were no, no. <laughs> Which ones? I, I'm talking about uh, 
EO, which uh, Jersey Skolomowski, the whole film was centered around a donkey. So that was right. the donkey movie, right? Well, there was which one was, other movie uh, with a donkey in it. They won uh, an award at the at the thing. They said, we have a donkey too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then like there were other movies that had donkey. We were like, donkey, donkey. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we're looking at the surveys at Screen International and the Film Francais. I hadn't heard about your thing, but we'll have a link to your list in the show notes and to the, the survey that you took part in. But looking at them, it was a, it was a year where Nobody was excited about the movies. You could see uh, typically uh, a four star, 4.0 is the top grade you can get on Screen International or Screen Daily. Only one movie scored a three or higher. I've never seen that. Never in 15 years of going and looking at it afterwards. That just meant, wow, nobody was liking everything a lot. Same thing with the film Francais. And of course, the, the Europeans disagreed with the Americans about they like this movie and we hate that movie. They hate that movie. We love it. You know, but there was not a lot of love for a lot of movies, though. Once you look at it, you know, you can see we've got the list of all the awards, but there are a number of movies I would definitely like to see about 10 to 12 movies at Cannes that we've got a list in our show notes of interesting movies. And you saw you maybe three, maybe four of the movies That'll probably be on your best of the year list. So that's pretty good. What are those two or three movies? One is, of course, the well, donkey movie, right? Yeah, the donkey movie was quite good. EO by Jersey Skolmowski. Uh, it was, follows a, a donkey around, uh, which you'd think, this is like the zaniest, craziest movie ever, right? No, it's actually quite straightforward. There are moments where you're like, what the heck? But it's actually pretty good. It's, it's the plot of Black good. Beauty. You follow Black Beauty around from owner to owner, a novel 100 years old. It's the plot of Alhazard Balthazar, which is about another donkey, of course, the Robert Poisson film that this movie is sort of an homage to and doing it in its own way. But no, you know, following an animal from owner to owner or its life is a, is a classic trope. Yeah, and I, I, I liked, uh, you know, there are all these sidebars, as you know, Michael. There's the director's fortnight. Uh, there is the critics week. There's all sorts of regard. Uh, you know, I, I happen to like um, Armageddon Time, which is the James Gray film. It may be one of his best movies, along with Little Odessa, which was the, the film that started his career. Uh, I, I really like that. It stars um, uh, Anthony Hopkins and uh, a really good uh, cast. And, uh, and you liked and you liked my my boyfriend, uh, Paul Mescal's movie. Oh, After Sun. Yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt, my favorite film of the festival was by Charlotte Wells, After Sun. It's about a very quiet, small movie that just, and you're like, why am I watching it? Like, what is going on here? It's Paul Mescal is a Scottish father, divorced from his wife, taking his 11-year-old daughter out on a, uh, on a summer holiday for two weeks to, uh, I guess, Turkey, and they have a video camera. And it's just very like, you know, the things that they discuss and talk about. And it is a very quiet. And you're like, what is this? There's no story. And in the end, boy, does it pack a punch. And I don't mean the last scene packs a punch. I mean, as you move on, it's such a touching movie. You realize that it has somehow captured you. It's don't go in expecting the greatest movie of all time, but just go in expecting to be moved and you'll be very happy. Well, and you um, saw a movie by another female director that you thought should have been in competition. That's the movie by Mia Hansen Love. Yes, last year, Bergman Island was in competition. This year, uh, A Beautiful Morning, uh, starring Leia Seydoux, the Queen of Cannes, or Princess, yeah. depending she on- 20 her. movies uh, I can, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, yes, this was a movie, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie, uh, and it's about, it's called A Beautiful 
morning or a good morning. Uh, and you know, she plays, uh, somebody who falls for a married man and, and, uh, you know, what that story entails. It's, uh, and you even liked, you even liked the Palm door winner triangle of sadness by now two time Palm winner, which is very rare. Indeed. Ruben Ostland, who you say is now going to be insufferable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, his first movie, Force Majeure, won the camera door. It was an ensemble en regard, and it won the camera door. Uh, his second movie, The Square, was in Cannes several years ago. I think it was 2017, maybe 2018, and it won the Palm d'Or. And now he directs this triangle of sadness, all in English, and he wins the Palm d'Or again. I mean, like every time this guy touches a camera, it's gold. So. It's like, watch out, Dardens. Watch out, yeah. Dardens. I'm coming for you. Yeah. Now, so this that's... movie is one that, that we will likely see. Oh, we will absolutely see many of these movies, most of them. In the world of streaming, uh, almost all the movies we've talked about will be available. We'll be able to see the Korean film Decision to Leave. We'll see Close, which looks lovely. We'll see Plan 75 and Holy Spider and War Pony from the granddaughter of Elvis Presley. Oh, what do you think of the Elvis movie? Is it awful? Uh, you know what? I went in thinking it was going to be awful. Uh, I mean, we've all seen the trailer and it doesn't look good, right? Nope. But nope. it is a spectacle and it is not. Ne okay. I, what I'm about to say might make it sound bad. It is not. Okay. It is a, it's an entertaining enough movie. It's entertaining. It's kind of a spectacle. <laughs> And it's You're got 49 songs. Guy. You're definitely an exhibitor guy. You're always trying to put movies in the best possible. It's, and it's not that no. bad. It's not that bad. Well, because I think we all expected it to be horrible. Well, Baz uh, Luhrmann hasn't made a good movie since, uh, you know. Uh, Moulin Rouge? No I, no, I don't think that's a good movie. Since Strictly Ballroom, as far as I'm oh, concerned. Well, yeah, that's I don't, his first movie. I don't like so his movies. Yeah, I don't like his movie. Well, what, Great Gatsby? You know? No, God, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but you know, so by the way, Neon acquired a uh, Triangle of Sadness. So this means that Neon has had the last three Palm d'Or winners. Mm -hmm. They had Titan last year, which by the way, I do not, not know how much money. <laughs> yeah, it didn't make a lot. But also it came out in September amidst the Delta wave, which it wasn't like, going to make money whenever it came out. It was right. never going to make money. The best line uh, of Can came before I even left my house when my 15 year old daughter said, I don't understand. You're willing to go all the way to Cannes and see a movie about a woman who has sex with a car, but you still haven't seen Trolls? <laughs> I, like, I said, that's funny, and I want to know how you know about Titan. <laughs> or maybe I don't. <laughs> but so overall, uh, you were glad you were there. It felt good. It felt like Cannes was back and everything was okay. You know what? All you was right with the world again. Yeah, you can tell that this is an industry on rebound. It's definitely headed in the right direction. There were some really uh, interesting movies, not all of them good, but here were some interesting, here's some interesting uh, a trend that I've noticed. Um, there was a film there called Mariopolis 2 uh, by a filmmaker who died, actually. He made Mariopolis, which uh, back in 20, um, 2014, when Russia first invaded uh, Ukraine and they took Crimea. Uh, now he has uh, a movie called Mariopolis 2. He was making it, uh, and I can't pronounce his, his name. It's Montes uh, Uh He died on, I think, March 30th in Mariopolis. And this is a film, it's not a good movie. It's not a bad movie. It's hardly a movie. 
it's a historical document because he basically sat in a church in Mariopolis and shot for, I don't know, six weeks. And you just see the war coming closer and closer and closer and closer to this church. It is stunning and miraculous. And Well, if it's stunning it, and miraculous, not, why isn't it a good film? What do you mean? Why is it not a film? Show is a, you, documentaries can be great films. It, it doesn't. It's a documentary that has no lead character. That well, has a, no. There's many documentaries like that. You don't have to have a lead character. If it's a good documentary, it's a good film. Yeah. I mean, don't go in thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be, you know, this is going to, it, it has no narrative. Okay. But you said it another wasn't a movie, good film. Another movie that had, by the way, you know, Zelensky showed up live via satellite at the opening ceremony. That uh-huh, was kind yes. Of, Apparently Um, he'll show up at every award show ever. So the Oscars were wrong not to let him. I thought, well, that would be silly. The Grand, the 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 Oscars. Well, that would be silly. Well, he doesn't need to be the. Apparently he'll be everywhere. The Tonys, the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys. uh, He'll be there trying to keep attention on Ukraine. Yeah, and 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 then there was another one uh, called uh, "The Natural History of Destruction" by Lasnitsa, which was all archival footage from World War II, both from the German side and the British side, and. There's well, no the talking. Ex- side, yeah. The, yeah, the allied side. And you have, there's a point where it doesn't matter if what you're looking at is Germany or the UK, because at the end of the day, everything is destroyed. And they, t- I mean, it's just a, it is a very good mo- documentary. And yet, cool. um, I know people who felt it was weak and, and went on too long. But these are two movies that if you get to see them, a lot of people walked out of Mariopolis too, because they felt like after 45 minutes, they got it. They got that though, you know, the bombings was ceaseless and, you know, they, and, and I get that. I totally understand that because it felt like a chore to sit through, but that's the point. Imagine what it's like in the war. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. That is exactly the point. Uh, and, but you know, so, so that trend is you, good documentary films or films capturing the moment. Or what is this trend that you said you were spotting? Uh, films that are documentaries that that just put you in things like uh, De Umani. Uh, God, I can't remember. De, basically, the human body, the, the makeup of the human body, uh, the name of which uh, is in Latin. And it's a lot of footage taken by laparoscopic cameras inside the human body. Yikes. Which you want to talk about. It was like a drinking game. The movie will begin and how many people will stay to the end as soon as they start cutting into the eyeball to replace a cataract. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Yeah, it it was like, okay, and uh, we're seeing a cesarean section live, kind of, you know, in real time. Let's see how many people run for the door. And there were quite... uh, At the end, I felt like, I won! It's like musical chairs. I'm still here. Well, it's a, um, it's a big deal. You got to go back to Cannes. Uh, they had movies. You saw some of the best movies of the year that you'll have on your list. So for all the work and effort, and even if the competition films were thin and a little weak this year, you had yourself a good con. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I don't know. We didn't go over the, the Palm Door winners. We did just one, which is fine. Uh, the one thing I will say is, and, and a lot of people felt this, that the Arabic films a lot of them were like, why, why is this film? Like a Holy spider? It seemed nobody liked, uh, it won best actress and, and she won best actress, uh, boy from heaven 
was not a bad movie. It just felt like this is a TV movie. Why am I watching this? This is a, a t- it welcome like a to con every year. People sit there and they go, why is this movie here? I would never have chosen this movie. So that it won screenplay. I'm like, okay, you know what? It won screenplay. Good enough. Yeah, I can see that. Well, if it's good enough to win best screenplay, surely it deserves to be a con. Mm, yeah, I would have liked to have seen other films. Like, by the way, Showing Up, which is the Kelly Reichardt film, everybody seemed to love this movie. I, on the other hand, was like, this movie is, is boring and has a character I don't like. Why am I watching this? Why do you hate sculptors? <laughs> it's a movie about an artist, yeah. Uh, it just it had characters that just made, you know, I was just like, I don't like this movie at all. I already said big deal. About that movie, you're right. Yeah, it's a big deal. No, no, no. I said big deal about it. It was a big deal. You got to go back to Khan. Oh, wait a second. I know why you said big deal. You're talking about Eurovision, aren't you? And if yes. you're talking about Eurovision, then without a shadow of a doubt, you must be talking about Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Because our first story is indeed about Eurovision. Slava Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine has won Eurovision, the annual song competition between the countries of Europe. And before you bemoan politics intruding into Eurovision, politics has always been a part of Eurovision, even if that competition frowns on overtly political songs. Countries often vote in predictable blocks with neighbor supporting neighbor, voting against their historic enemies and so on. Better to battle it out on Eurovision than, say, the battlefield. This year was different. The show began with the audience singing John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance. Numerous acts held Ukrainian flags aloft, as did many audience members. And along, all along, by the way, everyone predicted Ukraine was going to win with its rap ballad Stefania, an ode to the mom of one of the performers. In a surprise, however, the UK's Sam Ryder soared to second with Spaceman. By the way, last year, the UK was dead last. So big deal or big whoop. Ah, uh, it's a big whoop. Of course, it's Eurovision. Last year, though, Manskin or Maniskin, they actually parlayed the Eurovision into some high-profile stuff. That rock band, they were they opened for the Rolling Stones. They appeared on SNL. They played Coachella. So you know, uh, maybe Stefani can become a worldwide hit. You know, Eurovision still got some life in it. Now, speaking of music, Puerto Rican superstar Bad Bunny will star in a new Marvel movie as El Muerto. I'm starting that early, by the way. Good, good, good. El Muerto, a wrestler with uh, superhuman strength, kind of like moi. I learned <laughs> how to speak French. Yeah. Uh, now, that makes sense since Bad Bunny is a big fan of WWE and made some high-profile appearances in the ring. Sony snapped him up when they liked his turn in the Brad Pitt action film Bullet Train. Now it looks like Sony will be lucky to have him. Bad Bunny's first album in two years debuted debuted at number one, actually, on the Billboard album charts. It's only the second album in history that's primarily in Spanish to top the charts. The first, get this, maybe it's by someone you've heard, it's an earlier Bad Bunny album. (laughs) It opened with the equivalent of 274,000 album sales via streaming and actual album purchases. Michael will momentarily tell us how they should really just go with purchases and not album sales and purchases. Streaming streaming is streaming and never the twain should meet. Yeah, well, he, you know, uh, Bad Bunny also had four songs in the top 10 of the Billboard singles charts, the most Spanish language songs in the top 10 at the same time, much less four by one artist. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? 
Uh, it's a big deal. It's another barrier broken down by Bad Bunny. Very cool to see. He's launching a world tour of arenas. He did the Met Gala. He was just everywhere setting up this album. So it's no surprise that it opened big. Also, a really big thing. The week he debuted at number one, uh, a Mexican act, Eslaban Armado, hits the album top 10 with its album Nostalgia. It's the first regional Mexican artist to hit the top 10 in the Billboard history and even going to the charts before that, of course. There were no regional Mexican acts hitting, you know, during the Glenn Miller era. So that's very cool to see. And you know what? I listened to the album and it's really quite good. The guy's got a great sort of drawl. And now this week, the number one album is from Harry Styles, Harry's House. He's got a long, long uh, stay at Madison Square Garden and in L.A. I forget what arena he's at, but you can just go. He's there for like 20 nights, bro, and you got to go see him. And that album, Harry's House, is really good, too. Haven't gotten to the Bad Bunny yet, but both Eslaban Armado and uh, Harry Styles, very good albums. Well, I think, uh, you know, look, uh, Harry Styles will be here during uh, summer. So uh, maybe I'll drink a little watermelon sugar and uh, <laughs> there, head you on too. there you go. There you go. See, see what I did there? Why don't you, know, you bring so, sexy oh. back and keep going? Oh well, hey, you know what? Hey, don't laugh because Justin Timberlake is a, is our next story because we're going to stick with music, and Mr. Timberlake is the latest artist to sell off his music catalog of what three albums? I mean, how many albums does the guy have? Uh, in any ca case, no price was given, no terms were disclosed, and it's not even clear they have the rights to future songs written by Timberlake. But it was surely sold for a lot of money since the publishing market is red hot right now. The terms are probably the usual ones. And since recent big hits include Can't Stop the Feeling and that Chris Stapleton duet Say Something, we imagine they'll be getting future songs as well. But is this just one more deal, one more music deal, or is this a big deal or possibly a big whoop? <laughs> Justin Timberlake has five studio albums, two oh. compilations. He's contributed to, uh, he has three EPs and contributed to two soundtracks, including Trolls. <laughs> no, 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 I haven't seen it. I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you wouldn't know. Anyway, so is this a big deal or a big work? Well, you know, you thought, what's, what the hell's going on? You know, Hypnosis is the company that bought it, and they say Timberlake has sold 70 million sales as a member of InSync and 88 million sales going solo, to which I say, sales of what? It, it must be songs and albums and converting streams into sales because he's solo, he sold 30 million albums, nowhere near 88 million. So even if you combine albums and singles, I don't think it gets to 88 million. Anyway, he has sold a lot. That's interesting. But you think, wow, why is he selling this? Is he's over with his career? Because it's been old people retiring or towards the end of their career who've been mostly doing these sales. Now we've got Justin Timberlake. You think, wait a second. Not fair. You know, he hasn't had an album since 2018. Uh, but four to five years between albums is not that big a deal. It has been five years since he's had a, a single of his hit the top 40. He's only really released two since Say Something, his big hit with uh, Chris Stapleton. But, you know, he's going to be around. He's not done yet. And uh, his career's got a lot to go. So why he sold at this point, I guess he just said buy low, sell high, right? Yeah, I guess. I, don't know. I have no idea why he's selling. Uh, I guess in a way he's right. He probably 10, 15, 20 years from now probably wouldn't get more. That's no, for sure. exactly, exactly. Uh, but uh, now, I guess, let, let's call it a comeback, okay? This is really the only thing you could say. Actor you Kevin say, Spacey. Let's call it a comeback. Come on, you got to do the LL Cool J. All right, keep going. Okay, I didn't <laughs> know where that was coming from. Actor Kevin Spacey has booked his highest profile film since numerous men came forward describing how Spacey sexually harassed them, including actor Anthony Rapp, who was 14 at the time uh, when the incident occurred. 
while Spacey was 26 at that time. So what's his uh, comeback, you might be asking? It's a period of film called 1242. Uh, it's a gateway. To, well, I guess it's 1242 Gateway to the West is the full title. And it yes. tells how the grandson of Genghis Khan, you know, that famous grandson of Genghis Khan that we all know about, uh, he is poised to invade Europe when he stopped in his tracks at a castle in Hungary by mystical religious forces. Spacey plays a cardinal sent by the Pope and looms over the poster like a leader of the Inquisition. Also starring in the film, by the way, is Eric Roberts, Christopher Lambert, and Terrence Stamp. So maybe LL, LL Cool J, by the way, who said, let's call it a comeback. Uh, maybe he was right after all. Don't call it a comeback. No, wait, wait, actually. Now that I'm reading all this, you should call it a comeback because Spacey also has a thriller called Peter 5-8 selling at Cannes, or maybe it was sold already after production wrapped. This one includes Rebecca de Mornay and was shot in the U.S. And all of this happened amidst an interesting background, which I'm sure Michael will tell us about. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop, of course. I was annoyed by the coverage, the trades. You know, they've got to not be press release machines just because somebody puts out... Trades report as, oh, and, and, and in Rolling Stone, I think, and in news sites, they were like, oh, Kevin Spacey books his first big film. I'm like, what is it? 1242 Gateway to the West. This is not a big comeback film. This is a, my career is really over right now, and I'm doing the dregs, the bottom of the barrel. That is what would be an accurate reporting of him booking this junky nothing movie, 1242 Gateway to the West. This is not a comeback. This is a, oh, my God. I'm desperate. Nobody will work with me. I'm going to do this nothing movie just to be in something. That is an accurate reporting of what is going on there. And everything else was malarkey. So I was annoyed by that. But Deadline helpfully pointed out that films that can include lots of people who are a little problematic. Roman Polanski, Luke Besson, Johnny Depp, Alec Baldwin, James Franco, Kevin Spacey. You can find everything at the market. And all of this happened before Spacey officially got charged in the UK with four counts of sexual assault against three different men. And then you can see the release, the press release from the backers of Peter 5.8, who did a really bad job of defending themselves for being with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> so you can read that in the show notes if you like. But they're like, whatever. People just don't want him to act. It's like he got charged with assault in the UK. It's not like fans dissed him on Twitter. He's facing criminal charges for sexually assaulting men. This is not, you know, a smear campaign. But anyway, so very annoying. The comic book world has turned its attention to San Diego's Comic-Con in late July. That means it's also time for the Will Eisner nominations for the best work in every area of the industry, from archival presentation of classic comic strips to the best new web comics and, of course, biggies like best continuing series. We're looking at you, Nightwing. As with all awards, the Will Eisner nominations honor some of the best work out there, and they are useful for showing newbies like us, which comics are worth checking out. But actually, let's toot our own horn here for a minute. We've had all of two comic book creators on our podcast, and both of them, okay, both of them have been nominated for an Eisner. Radiant Black was nominated for Best New Series, and co-creator Kyle Higgins was a guest on the show, uh, I guess, last year. Plus, the noirish period piece, The Good Asian, is up for Best Limited Series, and co-creator Pornsock Pichy... Oh, I, I, I practiced this! Pitchichote. Yeah, I don't know. I practice this. Pitchichote. Pornsock Pitchichote. Uh, he was also a guest, by the way. Uh, and I practiced his name back then and I got it wrong. Ugh, I just can't do it. Um, clearly, 
we have a great we have great taste and poor pronunciation, uh, or we're just really lucky. Check out those two comic books, by the way, and and they're, they're a series, so you'll have to really check out all of them. Root for them at the Eisners and tell me, Michael, is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. It's very cool for them and cool for us. You know, we don't have a ton of artists on the show. And we had those two and I thought, oh, should we really be doing this? And, you know, we read the stuff and thought it was good. And so we had them on. We didn't just say, well, we'll have you on because you want to be. It's like, well, we looked at their work, thought it was interesting and said, okay, you know, valid, let's get them on. And, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that both of them are nominated for an Eisner. That, you know, there's a lot of comic books put out. <laughs> Most of them are not nominated. So uh, pat on our backs. I agree. Hey, maybe Kevin Spacey can book a slot on the new Pierce Morgan chat show, Pierce Morgan Uncensored on Talk TV. The outlet outlet uh, joins Talk TV as an attempt to convince UK viewers to embrace Fox News style opinion shows. So far, it's really, um, let's see. Nope, it's not working. Not working at all. One commentary in Variety says the influence of the BBC means viewers simply expect TV news to be, get this, Michael. I know you're going to have to sit down for this. Uh-huh. They expect it to be factual and unbiased. What? So, yeah, which uh, works against Fox style news shows because, you know, few facts. And even NBC style shows because, you know, facts, but, you know, too much opinion. How poorly is Morgan doing, you may be asking. His show launched with 317,000 viewers overnight, and in two weeks, it's now down to just 44,000. And falling, he at least has some viewers, and at least he has a rating. Though other shows on in Talk TV's prime time are so low rated, they are officially credited as having zero viewers. Which means, Michael, we could actually have a show more viewers. Yes, we have more <laughs> viewers than that. That's right. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. Well, big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a it's a big deal because you're glad to see it uh, falter if you're not a fan and think he does bad things. Um, but the latest episode I have numbers on, he hit 10,000. So he went from 300,000 to 40,000 down to 10,000 viewers. So that's really hurting. The other conservative news outlet that launched in the UK is GB News, Great Britain News. And they claim they're big on TikTok, which is exactly what you do when you're really not getting good ratings in prime time. And their talking heads include Nigel Farage. So a pox on all their houses. Team Coco. Oh, why are, you now, sk- why, why are you skipping? Oh, I've skipped one. You're right. Or, you know, there's so much happened in the past two weeks that, you know, I just, yeah, I know. It, they just fly by all these news stories. Well, we don't talk about Broadway a lot, so I thought we really should cover it this time. No, 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 no. We don't talk about Bruno. Broadway, we <laughs> no, talk not about Broadway, Broadway, Broadway. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, bro- yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, Broadway is back, as you know, Michael. I've been to see a bunch of shows, uh, as you know. I'm sure when you head back to New York, you'll see a bunch of shows. But Broadway is back, sort of. I mean, the 2021-2022 season has ended, and total Broadway gross has amounted to $845 million. That's obviously a huge improvement over the previous year when COVID and shutdowns meant Broadway gross Get this $42.67. No, that's, wow. I'm just $42, $42 million, I think. No, no, no. $42.67. That was the joke. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I read that and went, well, it's got to be like, it would help uh, if you read it in advance. <laughs> I did read it in advance. And I no, thought it was a mistake did. then. I almost put million. Anyway. You know, it made 40, maybe I'm going to round it up to $50 or something like that. I I don't have the official numbers. Okay. Of course, that $845 million is down from the last full season of Broadway. The 2018, 2019 season grossed, get this, $1.829 billion in all, which means that we're off by about a billion dollars. But there are genuine hits right now, like The Music Man, Six, Plaza Suite, and MJ... 
the musical, big deal or big whoop? Well, they're still dealing with lots of COVID cancellations because they don't want to get the whole cast sick and they don't want to get audience members sick. They're still wearing masks until I think the end of June on in Broadway voluntarily. But the thing here that I'd like to emphasize is that just a few years ago, before the pandemic, Broadway hit a record high. $1.8 billion was the biggest gross of all time. Just like the movie box office in 2019, a record worldwide high. So there's no reason we can't get back there again. So don't buy anybody who says, eh, everybody's habits have changed. Movies will never be back like they were before. Of course they can be very quickly and very soon. Look at movies like Downton and Top Gun and Spidey and Doctor Strange. It can absolutely happen. You just have to get the stuff out there. Team Coco is now on Team Sirius XM. Conan O'Brien just sold his podcast and digital media company to the satellite radio company. Uh, well, I guess Sirius XM. That would be yeah. the satellite company. The podcast, like his interview show titled Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, will become part of Sirius's podcast network, though not exclusively. More importantly, O'Brien signed a five-year deal with the company. He'll produce a comedy channel and his entire staff will join Sirius as well, meaning... Conan O'Brien won't have to pay them. Big deal or big whoop? <laughs> um, it's a big whoop, right? Conan O'Brien yeah, cashed in. Good for him. Though I'm shocked that he has a podcast show called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend where he interviews people because I do find Conan O'Brien funny at times. I never really watched his show regularly. I did like Andy Richter and his sitcoms, but Conan O'Brien, absolutely funny guy. I've seen him. He's very funny. He does good bits. But the one thing he never was good at ever after 20 years of being on television was doing an interview. He was a horrible, horrible interviewer. Maybe this show is just like comics, fellow comics, and that's a world he can do well in because like he was always glued to his index card asking the next question. And um, he was terrible. But anyway, he made $150 million and we didn't. <laughs> Well, first they came for the special improvement district, okay? Then they came for the copyright. <laughs> then they came for you, Michael. That's <gasps> the story of Disney. Okay, actually, so since you're not Disney, they didn't come for you. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, big deal or big whoop? No, just kidding. I mean, <laughs> hopefully a big whoop. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, uh, touche. Uh, well, DeSantis made pol political hay by targeting the special arrangement Disney has with the state. He signed into law a bill that would revoke the unique deal Disney World has with the surrounding local governments. We kind of talked about this. I mean, sure, revoking the deal might stick the local Democratic counties with a billion dollar bill since Disney was paying that bill up until now, but it made national news. Hmm, interesting. Now, freshman Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri has introduced a bill to roll back copyright protection for companies with a market value bigger than $150 billion. Disney has famously fought to keep Mickey Mouse under copyright, convincing Congress to extend copyright to first 75 years after the death of the creator and now 95 years. Hawley would retroactively roll back copyright to 56 years. Mickey, or at least the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey, would be in the public domain. Oh, and coincidentally, neither change will probably happen. And in the end, both men, both Hawley and DeSantis, are planning to run for president. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's funny because... Their unique uh, agreement with the state was bizarre and something that I thought should never have happened. And the copyright has been extended far too long. So they're doing two things I don't necessarily disagree with, but they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. Well, I think that uh, any time that you can 
pick on somebody, when a politician who is in power, okay, so whether whether those deals should have happened or not, and I think we could argue that extending copyright to at you know ad infinitum should not happen. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I, I think when you are basically picking on one specific company, it's and you're a politician, it's not good. You are no. abusing your power. That's a sign of corruption and a, and a failed state. You know, when you, when you punish your friends, you know, punish your enemies and reward your friends, you're in a, a, an oligarchy. You're in Russia. You're in another country where, you know, democracy and the rule of law isn't working. You should not be punishing individual companies because you don't like something they said or did. Just Correct. not the way it should be. If you if you have a disagreement on copyright like we do, fair enough, go at it. But this clearly is not what they're doing. They're just targeting Disney because they're angry at them. I mean, if you recall, uh, a Russian newspaper had to shut down because uh, because almost they, every they, Russian newspaper is shut down now. No, well, no, this one happened to be uh, the Novaya Gazeta, which, uh, by the way, ironically, in Cannes, they actually had a journalist in Cannes. I think they were the only person that had a journalist in Cannes. Ah. Uh, and and. I happened to know this because they were coming into the screening of Mariopolis 2 right behind <laughs> me. I was like, and everybody was interested. They were like, how are you here? Every other Russian journalist isn't here. Uh, so I, I don't They're know. They're probably how based they overseas. They're based overseas probably. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, well, but, you know, that wraps up Big Dealer Big Whoop for this week. And I should say these past two weeks. but uh, And moves us along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Now, here's the deal. We've got a lot of TV streaming news. We'll start with the upfronts, segue to a piece on the total amount of time people stream, which is, uh, I believe, officially referred to as too much time. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, we're going to finish with a look at this week's streaming numbers. Now, I guess let's start maybe, Michael, with the the upfronts, as I, as I just mentioned, because uh, they just happened, actually. They always happen during Cannes, uh, beginning with a presentation by uh, the, the, one of the biggest networks around, as you know, Michael. YouTube. YouTube. Big, big network. Uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, YouTube. Uh, and uh, it ended with the CW, as it always does. The upfronts, by the way, are uh, when the major broadcasters like ABC, CBS, NBC, they show advertisers all the shiny new shows they're going to air and convince General Motors and McDonald's and Budweiser and the like to buy lots of TV ads up front before they actually air to lock in lower rates. Hey, if this show's a hit, they say, you'll have to pay more a few months from now. So that's the idea. It's kind of like buying futures. Uh, it began with the big three. ABC, NBC, and CBS here in the United States. Now it includes everyone and your mother. So My mother, um, oh. YouTube, yeah, come on. yeah. You know, she look your your mom needs ads. You know, how else is uh, she going to watch? I don't know the View. I'm just picking names out of a hat here. So the upfronts are here, and and, and the trades are filled with questions. Like, how much money will the upfronts command? What do you think, Michael? Well, uh, you know, initial reports said it would look like it'd be down a good ten percent. But it's not a sign of a weak market. It's a sign that people don't feel the need to book so much in advance anymore. And plus, there are so many more outlets, even beyond the people that are here at the upfronts. You know, when you're advertising, it was like the big newspapers, radio, TV, billboards, right? You know, now it's 10,000 media outlets, digital buys, streaming, uh, TikTok. You know, there's just so many ways to reach out to people that, you know, you're spreading your money around more than you ever would before. So, even if this year is down and we still don't have final numbers, I don't think it means a weak market. It just means you'll see more money coming ahead in the months ahead as shows hit and become successful. 
But the big question is, how do we measure the audiences? This was the big argument and fight. You know how much I love Nielsen ratings. You know much how, how we love data about who's watching what and how much. Nobody can agree on how to measure the audience anymore. Yeah. I mean, and we've talked about this ad infinite. I mean, it's like, that is correct. You're absolutely right. correct. And that's why when, when, you know, these numbers come out, it's like, okay, great, whatever. You <laughs> so know, everyone, like- everyone wants to come up with a new measurement of eyeballs in the age of streaming, or in fact, they want to come up with new measurements. But the problem is some of these measurements being brought up by NBC. They're like, we have a great measurement. And the averagers are like, yeah. Not so keen on having you be in charge of telling us how successful your shows are. We're not really, that's not really, that doesn't work with us. <laughs> so, and Nielsen says it's still the gold standard. And you know what? I think they are. And they've got new ideas too. So maybe one size doesn't fit all anymore. It won't be just how many total viewers watched it though. That's an awfully good number. It's a useful number to have. But now we're looking, instead of saying 20 million people, they say how many minutes of this thing was consumed rather than a single episode. Thanks to the world of streaming, you're just saying how many minutes of the blacklist or the bachelor was consumed last week. That seems to be the big number that we're coming up with. I mean, I don't know what else they can do. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, I mean, TV, is it passe? Do you think? I mean, it's like regular television. I don't think it is. Did but- you watch any TV while you're in con, by the way? Did you stream anything? Or watch oh, I totally demand. did not. What are you kidding? 42 movies. I mean, seriously, they're all That's, like nine and a half hours long, these movies. You well, expect I me used to watch, to watch TV the, too? <laughs> I used to watch the American Idol finale in Cannes when I was still reporting on it. So yeah, I can say, but it depends. How do you define TV? So did you watch any YouTube? Did you watch any nothing? You didn't watch anything, huh? No? No. Okay, you were tired. You were busy. Well, guess what? TV is not passe if you include Netflix as TV, as it most certainly is. Netflix commands more TV time than any other outlet. People are watching a lot of TV. Nielsen tracks TV viewing on smart TVs and streamers and all that stuff. And of course, good old fashioned TV watching. It also counts delayed viewing on DVRs. And they give it the old college try when trying to track viewership outside the home at bars and college dorms, stuff like that. All in all, Nielsen says the big four broadcasters and the five streamers that it tracks, not everybody, but the ones it can track, added up to more than four trillion minutes viewed in the just-ended TV season. That includes more than 200 hours for every single person in the U.S., including newborns, who really should not be watching that much TV. No, although I, I can tell you, I think everybody knows you just, you know, you put the newborn down uh, safe distance away from the TV. Uh, you put on cocoa lemon and then you get yourself three, four hours. Worth of, uh, you know, <laughs> That's right. Step away time. from step away from the cocoa melon kids. And the yeah. biggest of the biggest Netflix, they captured 1.3 trillion minutes of viewing time on their own or about 33% of the total viewing that Nielsen measured. Think about that. A third of all viewing happened on Netflix. I believe it because I'm watching Heartstopper on Netflix right now. It's adorable. <laughs> anyway. I, I have like no time. Like somebody asked my my daughter, 15-year-old daughter. Uh, I guess I'm beginning to see how she you know knows what Titan is. Uh, but uh, <laughs> she she's like, that is oh, concerning. when did you... What, what, what season of, of Orange is the New Black did you get to? I'm like, well, I think I stopped watching it after a season. I don't know what season it was, but why are you watching Orange is the New Black? <laughs> so now remember, when we talk about this 4 trillion minutes, this does not include in viewing of PBS, the CW, or hundreds of cable channels, HBO Max, Peacock, Paramount Plus, or any viewing on laptops and smartphones, which is where I do a lot of my TV viewing now is on my laptop for various homeless guy reasons. 
So Nielsen estimates it captures about 40% of all viewing in North America. So that means instead of 4 trillion minutes, you can, you, you can, instead of, uh, you know, total viewing is much, much bigger than four trillion minutes. You've got to figure, uh, you add it all up. It's got to be a 64 trillion is 4%. That means it's more like 10 trillion minutes of viewing in a season. That's Nielsen's estimate of what they're doing. We've got a link in our show notes. You can look at the rankings of the top nine outlets, Neil Netflix, CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, Disney Plus, Prime Video, which is Amazon, Hulu, and Apple TV. Netflix is at number one. It's about equal to CBS and NBC combined. That's how much bigger they are. Those are the number two and three outlets, and Netflix is more than both of them combined. It's almost exactly both of them combined, which tells you everyone who says Netflix is over and is stupid and they're wasting their money and they're dead is like, no, not even close. And you'll be happy to know we're not going to tell you about all the Netflix layoffs and everything that's going on at that. Uh, well, there's, there, there's, there's no, there's not, there, everybody has layoffs. That doesn't mean, you know, they expanded too much. And now they're turning back down again. That doesn't mean they're throwing their business model out the window and they're not working anymore. The whole point of this is they're way ahead of everybody else in terms of total viewership. They're crushing CBS and NBC. And whereas it's really hard to start selling advertising, that would have to concern me if I was the networks and dependent on advertising. I'm a basic cable channel. I'm not happy that Netflix is starting to charge advertising. People are already watching them nonstop. I'm afraid that if they do advertising, that's just every penny that goes to them is one less penny to me. And if they're the number one outlet, they should probably be getting a lot of the advertising, right? So absolutely, that's, that's so, so exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened at the beginning of the internet. All those newspapers were like, all the uh, all the advertisers, they'll come to me. And then all of a sudden, Yahoo came along and Google came along, and all that advertising money started going somewhere else. And you know, mainstream media was like, wait a second, whoa, wait, where'd those at? Where'd that ad budget go? Wait, <laughs> it's only half. What? No, no, what? That was all my money. That's my money. Don't give it to them. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen with Netflix. So what you're saying is they're not dead yet. Not at all. The uh, okay. All right. All right. We'll move on. We won't, so do, the stream. we won't do the there? streaming. We won't say that CBS has a good argument to make that their top five shows are more popular than the top five on Netflix. Oh, that's, well, that's true. true. We won't say that Ozark had a big week and opened to 2.5 billion minutes when they finally dropped their part two of their series finale. 2.5 billion minutes viewed. Grace and Frankie had a good wow. week. Their series finale dropped. That had, you know, not nearly as big, but yeah, that's happening. And Bridgerton. It looks like Bridgerton is chugging along season two. I'd love to have charts showing us how much total minutes are viewed of a TV show so we could really measure season one versus season two or one show versus another. But we can't because the Nielsen ratings right now are dead, just like some people. Yes, like Star Wars artists. Now, by the way, uh, I know we're buckle, late. We're buckle, done. Buckle yourself in because uh, there are a lot of people who did not make it through the last like four weeks they were waiting uh, for the latest episode of showbiz sandbox and sperling let them down yeah i mean star star wars artist colin cantwell as i was about to say he died at the age of 90 that's right if you work with the beatles uh you're on seinfeld you're connected to star wars you will be celebrated in your obituary he was a major artist his first film credit is 2001 a space odyssey way to start at the top but star wars artist colin cantwell died at the age of 90 he worked on Close Encounters, War Games, all sorts of cool stuff. But Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. He worked extensively on the film. He designed iconic spacecraft like the X-Wing Starfighter, the TIE Fighter, and even the Death Star. Now, maybe he Ooh. regretted that because, you know, the Death Star can wipe out an entire planet with one shot. 
you know, just like the people on the Manhattan Project, he might have said, well, I feel bad about that. And in, in defense, in fairness of him, he did also design, you know, the X-Wing Starfighter, and that's what took it down, right? So, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. When I watched Top Gun Maverick, by the way, there's one scene where they're describing the mission they have to go on, and if they hit this, like, three-meter you know, bunker lid with one shot so that the next missile can go in and blow up the underground bunker. And so it's a tiny, tiny little three meter. And of course, Luke Skywalker, Man, that's no bigger than a wombat back on tattooing. <laughs> so I can hit that. <laughs> anyway, is that, you did not have that thought during Top Gun Maverick? No. No. Although, okay. although yes, it is a trench run. <laughs> it it's is a trench run. And he has to hit this tiny thing. And there's Luke going, oh, I can do that. Wombat's bigger than that. Whatever it what was. I love is is in you know not to give anything away. This isn't giving anything away. The whole time I'm thinking, couldn't they just do this with a drone? <laughs> 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 couldn't they just send a smart missile in to like seriously? All right, that's actually not a bad argument to make because it'd be like, on the ground and they wouldn't see it until the last minute. I just say I can't believe they people think it's an actual good movie. But anyway, <laughs> oh so my Colin, god, Colin, you. Colin, if you Oh, please, please. Colin Cantwell graduated with a degree in animation. He worked for NASA and JPL, helping to educate the public about other programs. He was invited by Frank Lloyd Wright to attend his school of architecture. Apparently, he said no, but this is the one little thing I wanted to share that's cool. He also worked with NASA and CBS. He worked with Walter Cronkite during the moon landing, that famous news coverage where Walter Cronkite talks about man landing on the moon. He had Colin Cantwell in his ear. Cantwell was on the phone with NASA, getting updates and feeding the latest info into Walter Cronkite's earpiece. So that's kind of a cool connection to history. But he did do Star Wars. Moving on, what did you think of Ray Liotta? He died at 67 unexpectedly. He was treated like as a... I, I feel awful. There may be people who are listening to the show, but sometimes I'm surprised at the love. People feel bad when someone dies. I mean, he had a couple great years. He has not had a lot of good roles in a long time. No, and Seems he would like be an, the first person to tell you that. He'd be yeah. like, oh yeah, no, no, no. I, my, my career skidded off the rails. Uh, I, and I think the reason that people, uh, he was a genuinely nice human being. Like I've, I met him a couple times and he was always incredibly nice. Uh-huh. And People on sets loved him. And I think the reason that that's one of the reasons everybody seems to be like, oh, yeah. but you're right. As far as an actor goes, he had a he had a great run there in the 90s. But ultimately, you know, his career skidded off. Well, it's just really hard to maintain a long career. It's really hard to make good work over decades, picking roles, finding that little magic that keeps you going, knowing when to pivot to TV. Or, it's just super, super hard. That's as important a skill as your acting talent. You know, it really, really is hard. Uh, Leota maybe didn't have that skill at the best, but he had a great run. Maybe that's why he was typecast on Another World. He was playing a character he described as the nicest guy in the world on a daytime soap, and he quit it, which is very ballsy, to go to Hollywood. That was in 1981. It was two years before he booked a film role, and it was five years before he enjoyed his breakthrough, but it was a big one as the charismatic villain in Jonathan Demme's movie, Something Wild, in 1986. I love that movie. I think it's great. And you can thank his friend Melanie Griffith for pushing Demme to say, no, you got to look at my friend. He's really good. He's really good. That's what got him the part. And after that, he did his best work. Something Wild, a great supporting turn to Shoeless Joe Jackson in Field of Dreams, and then starring in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, one of the great movies of all time. He did some other good work. An Emmy for uh, an appearance on ER. He was in Copland with Joe Mangold. He put Joe Carnahan on the map with NARC. 
And recent stuff was a little more high profile. He was in Marriage Story, the Noah Baumbach film, and the ill-fated Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark. Not ultimately successful, but at least that stuff you recognize as opposed to the forgettable stuff he was appearing in for years. So, you know. Hey, it was a TV show with Jennifer Lopez. Not good, but there you go. So, career, journeyman, but at one period, a great, great talent. Now, uh, speaking of talented, Roger Angel, he died at the age of 101. And, uh, you know, at least here in the U.S., he's very well known as one of the best baseball writers of all time. Yeah, I mean, no sport brings out the poetic and the florid like sports, like baseball. No, but no sport, not football, not basketball. Not, they all have great chroniclers, but baseball really brings out the poet and people. And even among the mighty company that has been inspired by baseball, Roger Angel is one of the best. Uh, a casual assignment to write something about spring training became a lifelong beat for him for the New Yorker. And he was ultimately inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is about as close to heaven as a fan can get. Now, ICM founder Marvin Josephson died at 95. He founded ICM, helped turn it into one of the major talent agencies in Hollywood. I know nothing about him. Do you? Is he important? I mean, he's a big guy. Obviously, yes, he's but- very important. He was, he was one of the founders of ICM, uh, you know, big talent agent. Did he influence the career, the industry in any way, shape, or form that you know of, other than uh, being a big guy? You know, he's an important yeah, guy, I mean, he a was, man of his word, blah, blah, blah. You know, he was, you know, when, when you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when agents became agents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he, he was, you know, he was there. He was creating an, an, an agency out of nothing, and, uh, and that's kind of what he's known for. Cool. Well, see, I know a little bit more about literary agent Mort Janklo. He died at the age of 91, and I know about the impact he had on literary agents and that industry of publishing. Uh, He was a big player. He was a lawyer. He turned to publishing. He founded his own literary agency in 1977, and he pioneered the mega deal. And it was sort of a combination of his instincts— and perfect timing that made him so influential. The New York Times did a great description of what that period was and why he was so important to it. Robert D. McFadden of the New York Times said in the obituary for Mort Janklow, after many years of dominance by publishers that all but dictated marketing strategies and the size of authors' advances and royalties, several factors, a consolidation of publishers into a handful of major houses, the decline of independent bookstores, and the rise of discount bookstore chains like, you know, Little Professor and B. Walden, that all forced publishers to rely increasingly on the sale of bestsellers. He goes on to say many major publishers would not even read unsolicited manuscripts. That's true to this day. That meant agents became the first to see the work of unknown authors and agents' judgments often based on sales rather than public interest or literary merit, largely determine what publishers bought and presented to the reading public. End quote. In short, big publishers who didn't have the time to read you know, manuscripts anymore, they wanted bestsellers. And people like Mort Jankla said, I got you bestsellers. So his big, his big clientele were Danielle Steele, Sidney Sheldon, Barbara Taylor Bradford, Judith Krantz. He had a few classy people like historian David McCullough, but everybody was making money and everyone was happy. Then he formed Janklow and Nesbitt with Lynn Nesbitt. She was an ICM agent, the company founded by Marvin Josephson. And she had a much classier clientele roster. Tony Morrison, Tom Wolfe, Jean Le Carré, Donald Bartome, who I've met, and so on and so forth. They had 1,100 writers in all, hugely important. He also represented presidents. He did Nixon, Carter, Reagan, and he did Mrs. Nixon, Mrs. Carter, Mrs. Reagan. He said, you know what? 
presidents tend to try to rewrite history from a kind of Olympian posture, but first ladies, they tend to be much less inhibited and more inclined to settle scores. So bet on the first lady if you're going to buy a book. But before Janklo, the publisher was king. After him, the writer mattered a lot more. And guess what? I interviewed at, at Janklo and Nesbitt. I first came to New York, wanted to get a job in, in the industry as a writer, but I had a professor who had an agent at Janklo and Nesbitt. She needed a new assistant, a personal secretary. And so I got an interview with her and I was like, oh, I could have been in a whole new different world. I could have gotten into that literary publishing world. Could happen very easy. If only I typed faster. <laughs> well, uh, right. I mean, look, we, I'll go through we the best. Child star turned opera singer June Preston died at 93. A fun, interesting story. Big child star then rediscovered puberty hit her movie career ended. And then she became an opera singer because she had a great voice. Actor Fred Ward died at the age of 79. Read our obits to see his story about how he optioned the novel Miami Blues to make one of his best movies ever. Miami Blues, a terrific little film that should have launched a franchise, but his real franchise was Tremors. And just like, you know, Ray Liotta, Nice, good journeyman actor, but he really had that brief period from the early 80s into 1990. That was really his best. And of course, his best role by far is Gus Grissom in the classic film, The Right Stuff, one of the best movies ever made. Ronnie Hawkins died. The father of Canadian rock and roll died at 87. His backing band had some of the greats of Canadian music, like Roy Buchanan and Pat Trevers, and eventually coalesced into this group, his backing band, The Hawks. They were so good. They said, you know what? We're going out on our own. And they renamed themselves The Band. And drummer uh, Alan White died at 72, a journeyman British drummer, played for everybody, including John Lennon. He played on Imagine. He played on George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. He played on all sorts of albums by uh, Apple Records bands. And then he got invited to join Yes. He joined the group Yes in 1972 and stayed with them for the next 50 years. And finally, Although he did say no when invited, except they said, no, no, no. <laughs> it's yes. It's yes. And he was like, no, I, I said no. And they just, they put him on the bill and he was like, They well, refused no, to take no up. for a yes. Yes. And then finally, exactly. Vangelis, the Oscar-winning composer of Chariots of Fire and Blade Runner, died at 79. He scored everything from documentaries to the funeral of scientist Stephen Hawking. He turned down the chance to join the rock group Yes. <laughs> he no. Said no. He said no to yes. And they're like, okay, no. And then he collaborated <laughs> weirdly on multiple albums with yes singer John Anderson. So he didn't record with them, but he did record with their singer. His breakthrough as a composer came when commercial director Ridley Scott used a track by Vangelis in his landmark ad for Chanel called Share the Fantasy in 1979. Do you remember that ad? Huge yes. ads ran for like decades, hugely influential. In 1980, another track by Vangelis was used in the Carl Sagan TV series Cosmos, which was a massive worldwide hit series on PBS. And suddenly he was an in-demand talent. Then bizarrely, producer David Putnam, he made the bizarre, strange choice to score his period film Chariots of Fire with an electronic score by Vangelis, it worked a charm. The soundtrack hit number one. The title song hit number one. The movie won the Oscar for best score and best picture. And, uh, you know, very cool. It was the little film that could. And I think one big reason it won best picture was because the music was so omnipresent and kept people going to the theaters. It was like pure advertising for the movie. We have a link in our show notes to his his performance of the title track that became a number one hit. And he's basically in a studio, smoking a cigarette, watching the film play out on screen, that opening sequence where people are running on a beach and he's sitting there and the, and the synth thing starts and he's smoking a cigarette and he casually puts the cigarette down and then starts to play the piano just as uh, you know, his piano stuff is supposed to come in. It's kind of kitschy and crazy, 
but it's a really great score. And I have to say Blade Runner, one of the great scores of all time. It's a hugely influential score. I just love it, love it, love it. So goodbye, Vangelis. And goodbye to our audience for now. For now, stay tuned. We might have a, a special can, uh, maybe. We'll see. Uh, but uh, we'll definitely be back next week. And you know what? Make sure to subscribe to us in iTunes, the Spotify, Stitcher, Microsoft Marketplace, Google Podcasts, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us. And if you can't, let us know. You can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call us. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can find us and like us. And I, I guess, I, what what is it, follow? I guess you follow on Twitter, you like on, I, I, I don't know. We're, we're in all these places. Hang out with us. Uh, you know what? You can find that information as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode on our website, Showbiz Sandbox. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt is a website, and every week, it's something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? Well, I'm joining the Japanese uh, Shin Universe. I'm at website ShinMichaelGilt.com. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, at the beginning of the show, Shin Ultraman, Shin Godzilla, the whole Shin Japanese uh, superhero multiverse that they that they launched. Ah, Pay attention. Okay. Pay attention to the show. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? I- I'm going to give our, our listeners some guidance here. If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgilts.com, where all of his work can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week. Play nice.